got a lot up here with me, and I have. Well, you need about three times as big for me. I've got all books and papers and glasses, but I'll get there. Before I get preaching, I want to share something with you, which I felt really quite stirred about. As Matt said, um, Marion and I lived here most of our lives, and uh, Marion and I originally joined uh, what was called Hastings Christian Fellowship. I think it was called St. Leonard's Christian Fellowship, actually, uh, in about 1976, and we made it double figures. We made it 11 members when we joined down in Don Smith's uh, basement flat in Upper Mays Hill. And uh, that was the beginning of this church, which changed its name twice since then, Hastings Christian Fellowship, and then in the early 80s, I think, King's Church. And so Don and I were, were the first elders here. Don was the lead elder. Worked very much as a team together. This is partly for visitors, to give you a little background, while I'm going to be able to say all the cheeky things I'm going to say in about five minutes. Um, and uh, then around, I think it was 1988, I, I took over lead elder role here uh, with a team uh, of various other elders with me and uh, led the team until uh, 2002 when we went to Winchester. So it's always a pleasure to come back. And as many of you we know, we know you actually quite well, except for one little blip in my mental block, which is names. So I do have this curious experience, as I was reflecting earlier, and it really is quite curious that I can meet someone and I can tell them probably quite embarrassing biographical details about their lives in some cases, like, you know, I don't know, a pastoral problem from 20 years ago or something like You'd be surprised what comes up, but what won't come up instantly is your name. So rather than say, oh, you're the person who lost your job and then we did this and then used to be a house group leader and then you did a fact, rather than give you a bio of yourself, I'm keep telling my brain, please give me their name, please give me their name. Uh, but they do come in the end. So if I talk to you and I seem to be a little distracted, if you're an old member here, that's partly what's happening in my tired old brain. I do wish it worked in the right order. Often, a couple of minutes after I've moved on from you, I remember all about your name and your wife's name and your children's names, rather belatedly. So that, that experience. Now, what, when I was coming here today, I decided to get out a memento. Um, this is a memento from when, from, it, it's actually quite a while ago. I wonder if some of you will know it, recognise it. Oh, you can tell. If you recognise this, you were still, you were in this church 18 years ago. This was presented to me, a ram's horn trumpet to remind you of Joshua, presented to John Groves, 5th of April, 1992, the first Sunday in Boundaries. What's boundaries? This is boundaries. Now the Hastings Centre. So this was the first Sunday, and I was presented with this. I think probably it was Tony, your workmanship, I think. And I can remember Jim Bibby, because this is an active memento. Now Jim Bibby managed to blow this. I can't. (laughs) (coughs) Apparently you're supposed to blow a raspberry and try, just to have one go. No, it still doesn't work. Uh, but basically, this does emit a somewhat disturbing noise, if blown by Jim Bibby, anyway. Um, <laughs> don't mind embarrassing you there, Jim. Um, but, but the reason I was given this is we were preaching on, I was preaching on Joshua before we came in here. And what we were talking about prophetically was that this place, and it's only a building, it's only fabric, was for a church, which is you, which was bringing the gospel to Hastings. And the ram's horn was the proclamation of the gospel. 
And when, when it was blown, the strongholds began to crumble. As we proclaim the truth about Jesus, as we declare him Lord of all, as we blow the ram's horn of the gospel, we will see some Jerichos fall in Hastings. And I believe you are seeing that. I believe you'll see more than you've seen up to this time. I'm encouraged by what's happened over the last eight years, but you haven't yet achieved, and you know that, what I believe was God in, was in our heart when we came in here. Hastings is a bit of a funny place. This is where I have the legitimacy of, I mean, I was brought up here um, and went to school here and everything. Hastings is a little bit of a funny place. I remember when the church started, someone said to Don, right back in the mid-70s, nothing works in Hastings. And someone said that to him as he tried to start this new church. said, nothing works in Hastings, you're wasting your time. And that wasn't true, it still isn't true. But there is a sort of stronghold if I put it, a sort of downbeat thing. You notice it when you move away, a sort of feeling that maybe we're not going to achieve much, maybe we're the end of the line, maybe literally the light, railway line or other things. Uh, a, bit, a bit of a sort of oppressive almost sometimes, uh, it's not going to work thing. <laughs> I don't know if I can articulate it very well, but I've lived here so I do know that it's there in the air sometimes. But the kingdom of God is not of that culture. The kingdom of God is heaven's culture. It's about God's goodness, God's grace, God's provision. And I think as God's people, we are here to declare that by our words, by our lifestyle and everything, to declare there's another way. Now, there are other strongholds and cultures in other places. Winchester's got quite significant ones. I could list them to you. Um, And I won't because of time, actually rather than any other reason. But, but you've, when you're the church, you sometimes have to acknowledge we are declaring something. We're doing something differently. Not only with our lives and our words, even with physical things. And I think boundaries, as it was then, this had something of that and still has. In fact, I think you've explored more of it. We say that actually a church can buy a thing and can do stuff with it and can, and can serve the community and can reach out to people and can give stuff away, and uh, can complete tasks, and can pay off for buildings, and they don't end up as white elephants. They're used, and they're made much of, and, and the community is touched through them. Now, actually, I believe that was with our hearts when we bought the building, and I think it's proved true. Many exciting things that I couldn't have done have happened in the time since then. I know lots of children, youth works, exhibitions, all sorts of things. But here I'm going to be cheeky again. <laughs> And, and, and it's because I know where you're going with the next few weeks. I actually think it is time for some significant money to be invested in this building. This carpet was here 18 years ago when we came in, for goodness sake, and it was three years old when we came. I mean, how many of you have got a 21-year-old carpet in your living room? And, and, and to be honest, those pla- You have, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, never mind. Have a whip round for Nick and Hannah in a minute. I mean, we don't... But look, I mean, look at it. What's that, all that plastic stuff you've got stuck on it? Now, I mean, it had a purpose once, but it was, a, it was an indoor cricket and whatever, and badminton, and I can remember it's all you... This, it's not merely about, oh, let's change it because the fashions have changed. It's about, it's been well used. This had carpet has seen a lot of activity. Seen people lying on it for ages in the mid-90s. It's seen a lot of sport. It's seen a lot of kids. It's seen a lot of things. And the plastic chairs, they're all right, still comfortable. 
But I think when we bought them 18 years ago, the thinking was they were slightly a short-term answer because we couldn't afford anything else. Now, that, I think it is time for a refurbishment. And I actually want to now say that I, I don't have any problem, because I've talked to Paul, that it might well need realigning. I mean, we stuck these things up. We were going with something, and actually it's a big space and you can use it, but actually it might be wise to have it a little more honed so that you can sort of use it more effectively for, say, a, a, a gathering of whatever it is, eight, 800 or 900 might be the next stage in your growth. I want to tell you what happened at Winchester. When I went to Winchester... They had bought a cinema, and uh, this is really, really timely. Last week, let me start at the end and come back. Last week, we had a gift day in Winchester, and we finished off paying for our building last week. uh, It's good. It's good. It's been a 13-year journey. The building has cost £3.6 from beginning to end. Last week was the second of two gift days, and we raised 101000 we needed 70,000, and we went right through. And I said to the church, we need 70,000 to pay off the last loan. Let's go through running like this, not, <laughs> oh, we've got over the line. Let's, get, let's run through. Let's finish the 13-year marathon with a run. And they did bless them. I was praying for 70,000, and we got 101. So God did something. We punched through it. And that leaves it for a new phase, because there's a guy called Steve Chick going to lead the team there. I'm going to stay there, be, be more widely used in my ministry, go travel more, might be able to come to other places such as here more. So just as needed, so a wanted. So what I'm trying to say is there's a big change coming up. Steve's leading, but actually we have completed it. Now I want to go back. When I went to Winchester, now let me go back. About t- over two million of that money has been raised in the last eight years, okay? So probably more than the ma- well over half has been in my tenure there. When I went there, they bought this building in an amazing way, without a bank loan, and it's an amazing story, but it was all tatty. It was super tatty. I mean, this makes this look like the Queen's Palace. It, uh, you know, I'm not saying you're tatty. To I, I, I know, I lived here, for goodness sake. I bought the place, so I, I can be free. But it wasn't like... You know, it was worse than the carpet was worse than this, put it that way. And um, what there'd been a plan which Greg had really felt was right to put in a massive floor and a 1500 seater auditorium. And it, to put the floor in would cost two million pounds. To put the floor in, because it altered the whole of the um, uh, uh, whatever they are underneath. What are they? Foundations. Foundations. See, it's not just names I have problems with. Uh, so. So, I, I mean, Greg had run with that, but then God had moved him on, and I think there was something in his spirit, which gave, if you don't know who I'm talking about, those who do will understand this. There was something in his spirit that God answered in a different way. He went to Westminster Chapel, which does seat nearly 2,000, and his preaching ministry is now in Westminster Chapel. But I looked at the building, I thought, I don't think we're supposed to put a floor in and, and pay out £2 million before we even do anything, like all the stuff that goes in the building. And I just felt God say to me, just make it, it's a 750-seater, just make it good and nice as it is. Now, actually, that needed massive investment. The floor needed replacing. We needed to put a baptistry in. We found there was a load of asbestos that had to be got rid of. So it actually cost £1.7 million to make it what it is today, a very attractive auditorium. But I felt God said, no, no, don't go with that bigger. Go for something that's in your heart, that was in harmony with the previous, 
uh, man's vision, but was, I think, actually rooting it into reality more, with all great respect. I wonder, and I believe that's the sort of thing that God's putting in Paul's heart, that there, there isn't so much like, I mean, I know there's some exciting ideas, but actually let's make it, freshen it up, 21st century, next decade, let's get the thing so that we can have decent size, achievable declarations of the gospel in here where people find it attractive. It's a nice building, but it's 18 years we've been here. It's time for some refurbing. So I totally support what Paul's doing. And I'm not saying this just because he's my son-in-law. I just felt in my spirit, honestly, I felt as I was preparing to come here, I want to give as much as I can a push to what's going forward. Go for that gift day. Go for a new phase. Go for something that puts in and let's say in Hastings, we don't just have a bright idea and 18 years later we're trying to keep it going with plastic tape. But actually, we do keep seeing God moving dynamically. There are, in the kingdom of God, there are no white elephants. There's no things like, why did we buy such a big... No, no, it's fine. I mean, it's pretty well full today by the standards that I've been used to when I've been here. But I believe you've got to actually see it as something that you might... I want to see you twice this size. But to be twice this size doesn't necessarily mean you do nothing to the configuration of the building. It might come out differently. It might be multiple services or something of perhaps six, seven hundred each. I don't know. That's for the vision of the leaders now. But what I do know is that you need to go forward. It's the right time. As I look out on your green plastic seats and your 21-year-old sports carpet, which has been a great blessing. I'm not, you know, we've all enjoyed it. Let's also move on. Amen? Amen. Right. And that's nothing to do with what I'm preaching about. (laughs) So, I would like you to get your Bibles out. Hey, good old boundaries. The rain on the roof. Now, I haven't had that problem for years. It gets louder and louder sometimes. And I always feel, Marion says, oh, you always say, but I always feel it reminds me of revival. I don't want to get prophetic, but I, when I'm preaching here, the rain's on the roof, it reminds me God has promised revival. Amen? Amen. So I don't see it as purely accidental that as I'm here talking to you this morning, it's raining. I see that as something to rejoice in. <laughs> I say, thank you, Lord, for a reminder. Your promises are true promises. We will see something in the kingdom of God in Hastings that hasn't been seen for several generations. I, I think you're already seeing it, actually, at the beginning of it. We will see it in Jesus' name. And, it, and it's going to be to his glory. Amen? Rain on the roof. Thank you, Lord. The other thing that usually features here is a butterfly sometimes appears and flies around. But that might be stretching it a bit today. Right. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. I want to talk about our awesome God, the God who is there. Uh, This is the beginning of a series I did in Winchester a a while ago, I think last year sometime, and uh, unashamedly, I'll tell you that, but I felt it was on my heart and I've rethought about it a bit to bring it this morning. But it's a series that I did on God because I was very conscious in our day and age that we have, we've got to look at the cultures of the society we're in, we have a battle on our hands with a form of new atheism, a form of, uh, a hallelujah, yeah, a form of new atheism, a form of attacking God's very existence. Obviously, the main public 
carriers of this banner are Richard Dawkins particularly, with his The God Delusion, and he's often on television in the media, certainly over the last few years, and I, I noticed, uh, or this is probably about three or four years ago, that The God Delusion was the top of the reading list of the MPs. Uh, you know, so our members of parliament were all taken away and reading The God Delusion for the summer or something, say three or four years ago. So it's obviously something that lots of people know about. Then you've got a guy called Philip Pullman who writes children's stories. There was a film, is it The Golden Compass? And he's an avowed atheist, an aggressive front foot atheist, really ripping into concepts of church and God and, put it, and trying to be an anti-C.S. Lewis type figure who, 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 who puts stories in to really put the record straight that God's a bad, per, the concept of God is bad and he doesn't exist. There's a lot of aggressive atheism. There's a lot of subtle stuff. It's in our media, it's in our television, it's uh, in our education, and uh, it's there all the time. Then there's the confusion of a pluralistic society that says, well, look, actually, we probably all think there might not be a God, but we haven't a clue if there is, and, you know, all you funny little religious people can have your fun, like sideshows, the big tent, the big top, is humanism and atheism, where the sensible people are. But there's a lot of sideshows, you know, it can be New Age, crystals, Christianity, yeah, uh, you know, Islam, some are nicer than others. And, and you're out there, have your little fun. It's a sort of feel in our culture sometimes, what's round behind the pluralism. And then, uh, you know, you feel you battle with stuff like evolution, creation, you know, you're the real science of it all. And uh, even Christians could think, well, hang on a minute, maybe, uh, is this right, this creation and God... And, and so on and so forth. And uh, those are real issues to have. I'm, I'm going to read from a couple of books in a moment, but I'll say right now, uh, because I might forget later, that if you're, uh, you, you need to only take this up if you're seriously interested or if you, you have a bit of science background, maybe doing A-levels or something, but there's a good book called God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? And it's written by a guy called John Lennox, who's a professor of maths, I think, either at Cambridge or Oxford, it's a very responsible, good paperback. And it's a very weighty handling of the fact there's a lot of evidence for God. So it's God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? John Lennox. You obviously get it from Amazon quite easy or something. It's quite a contemporary book. Esther gave it to me, my daughter Esther, for Christmas. And I enjoyed reading it, and it's good. And Esther's a science graduate, so it doesn't mean you don't have to be a science graduate. To, I'm not. To, to understand it, but it, it's, it obviously has got some... I got one or two chapters where I had a cold towel around my head and sort of furrowed brow trying to understand the arguments, but most of it was fine. Most of it I did understand. But it's a good book, and it's certainly something you need to be aware of if you want to lend it to somebody who thinks and worries about those sort of things. It has quite a lot of knowledge of those sort of things. Okay, that's a little bit of a quick advert. <laughs> now, the, the other thing that's on my heart, which is a very positive thing, is that I want to stimulate praise and worship in our great God. I want us to not be on the back foot. I want us to be able to glorify him and rejoice in him and just embrace all the wonderful truths about him in his word. A guy called Jim Packer wrote this. Knowing God is crucially important for the living of our lives. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Now that's true. You need to know God. You need to be confident in your faith about him and know that he wants you to know him. And that's really where I'm going this morning. And he will reveal himself to you. 
The Bible tells us even unbelievers know God. But also, we can know him so much more. I haven't read it yet, have I? I told you I was going to read it. That's sidetracked. Let's read it, okay? Romans 1. Let's read it before I get into the detail. Here's, uh, we're going to read from verse 16 to verse 25. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, A righteousness is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. That is a powerful bit of scripture. And it tells us that actually people in their hearts know there is a God. What they struggle with often is the implications of that. They don't give him honour, they don't give him thanks. Indeed, they actively and willfully turn their back on him. And they, as it were, contest with him. The Bible clearly recognises that some people, many people deny the existence of God, or act as though he doesn't exist. The Bible and God himself are not shocked by the thought that some people say there isn't a God. I mean, it's not like God says, oh no, someone don't believe in me, and bites his nails. God knows what people think. God knows. The Bible talks about uh, people who are atheists. Here's a quote, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. God says, others can see all sorts of fools down there who say in their heart, there is no God. It's not freaking God out that people say, well, actually, I don't believe in you. Well, there have been fools like you for thousands of years. You know, I mean, God's not... In fact, God has quite an incisive way of analysing atheism. Here's a scripture which Liz will put up, Psalm 10, verses 3 to 4. And it says this, about people who don't believe it. He boasts of the cravings in his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. That's God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. And really, the problem of atheism is a moral problem as much as it's an intellectual one. In fact, I would argue, I think the Bible argues, it's more of a moral problem than it is an intellectual one. It's pride and sin that leads people to behave what is fundamentally irrationally, it's irrational to deny the existence of a creator. And it's pride and sin that drive you that way. Fundamentally, atheism is a moral problem more than it's an intellectual problem. Why? 
Because there is an abundance of evidence that God exists. Actually, the natural world gives ample evidence of the existence of God. We've just read, we'll flick it up on the screen, thank you, Liz. Romans 1.20. For since the creation of, of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly understood as seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Let's leave that up for a moment. God says there isn't really an excuse. People say, oh, it's very hard to believe in God. 21st century, you know, whoa, all the scientific stuff. Whoa. Actually, God says, you have no excuse. We're going to look at that for a few minutes this morning. Hope you had a good breakfast. A couple of Weetabix. Perhaps had fish for supper last night. Get the old grey cells going. Hercule Poirot, grey cells. Yeah, So, because we're going to think about a few things this morning. But, but basically, God says, actually, it's not that hard to believe in me. There are issues that make it very clear. With those with eyes to see and evaluate, quite seriously, every leaf, every insect, every star cries out, look at me and learn about the creator and sustainer of the universe. If our hearts and minds were not so blinded by sin, I believe it would be impossible for us to look at a leaf and understand how a leaf works without saying, it would be impossible to look at that and say, no one created it, it just happened. But for moral blindness, almost any simple thing, when you understand it, a leaf and how it operates on a tree, it'd be very hard to look at it and say, no one designed it, no one, that just happened. And that argument is a powerful one. Snowflakes, water, bumblebees, you know, what do you want to talk about? Millions of things. And I think they point to a wise incredibly complicated and wonderful creator with great designs and plans. But above all, you point to a creator. I do. Human beings or the circle of things we are in. And that's the three big things I want to talk to you about as I go through. This isn't all introduction. We've already heard a bit of my talk. But this is the core issues, I believe, that argue powerfully for God and should make us think about not only God, but what sort of God he is and how we relate to him. Let's take the first big one, life. Life itself, thank you. Just life, in that big central word. Now I'm going to mention a book, which I probably don't recommend for most of you to buy, because it's a little bit on, it's not a Christian, it's a little bit on about himself. But for me, this was a fascinating book when I stumbled across it. It's called There Is a God, but it's actually There Is No God, crossed out no, and then A. There is a God, how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. It's a little bit hyped, that title. But Anthony Flew was a notorious atheist because he was the professor of philosophy at university when I was at university in the late 60s, early 70s, having gone through what was now called the William Parker School. I went on to university and he was the professor of philosophy. I know Anthony Flew. I've sat and listened to Anthony Flew. Because Anthony Flew loved to argue for atheism. He loved to have debates with Christian professors. I was in the Christian Union at university, and I have on probably at least two or three occasions been part of organising, it was almost an annual feature, a debate between Professor Flew and Professor Mackay. Professor Mackay was a science professor actually involved in research who was a strong Christian. And he supported the idea of there being a God, and Anthony Flew was aggressively atheistic. 
and they used to have debates, which were very fascinating in that sort of university world. And Anthony Flew did that sort of thing all over the world. He wasn't like Richard Dawkins. The average guy on the street wouldn't know much about him. But in his own way, he was on the front foot as an atheist. He has come to believe in a god or creator. And he argues in this book that the only reason he's not yet a Christian... His one comment about that is, if you're going to have a religion, Christianity is the one to beat, is what he puts in his religious comment. But what he's talking about is a creator or designer. And he said, all my life I've been committed to going where the evidence takes me. And I must not be inconsistent in my later life that the evidence of discoveries in the last 20 or 30 years take me to the conclusion there is a creator. He has been vilified by people like Richard Dawkins, who he would be in the same circle as in earlier years, who say he's got old and silly, lost his marbles, and all sorts of... It's it's quite rude about him, rude about him, because he has changed significantly. Now, his argument is, bottom line, about life. And it's about us and life. One of the arguments is this. Everything is fine-tuned for our existence. Not just a little bit, incredibly. And the more and more people have discovered things in the last 20 or 30 years, the more amazing it is that we exist at all. If you altered some things by an absolutely minute fraction, we would not exist. This is all from an argument of evolution, fine? We're not even talking about that that... I mean, his argument would be that's the means God's used, but there's a creator and designer behind it. So we're just talking about God and his existence. And he said, there's a little illustration, I think it's quite worth reading. You go on a story or two this morning. He gives an illustration. Here, listen to this. Imagine entering a hotel room on your next vacation. He's been in the United States for some years, so you know. The CD player on the bedside table is softly playing a track from your favourite recording. The framed print over the bed is identical to the image that hangs over the fireplace in your home. The room is scented with your favourite fragrance. You shake your head in amazement and drop your bags on the floor. You're suddenly very alert. You step over to the minibar, open the door and stare in wonder at its contents. Your favourite beverages, your favourite cookies and candies. Even the brand of bottled water which you prefer is sitting there. You turn from the minibar then and gaze round the room. You notice the book on the desk. It's the latest volume by your favourite author. You glance into the bathroom where personal care and grooming products are lined up on the counter, each one as if it was chosen specifically for you. You switch on the television. It's tuned to your favourite channel. Chances are, with each new discovery about your hospitable new environment, you would be less inclined to think it was all mere coincidence, right? You might wonder how the hotel manager acquired such detailed information about you. You might marvel at the meticulous preparation... You might even double-check what all this was going to cost you. But you would certainly be inclined to believe that someone knew you were coming. And that's a chapter saying about us and the existence of human beings. There are so many things that are incredible. You think, it can't all be coincidence. The big key ones are often to do with more recent discoveries of things like DNA and chemical coding. Just give you a quote from this book, from the flu, It's the quote that's going to go up. I hope you... I'll just read it carefully. He says, The philosophical question that has not been answered in Origin of Life Studies is this. How can a universe of mindless matter produce beings with intrinsic ends 
self-replication capabilities and coded chemistry. That's us. <laughs> and how can it come out of, and it's not just us actually, it's all living things. He's talking about life, not just human beings. Life is the subject. How does that come from non-life? How does life come from non-life? How do coded DNA come from nothingness and chance? They are big, big questions. They're not only asked by men like Flu, who probably wouldn't call himself a Christian, but is a de- deist. They're asked by other scientists that you won't always hear about when you switch the television on. A man called Paul Davis, who's a leading physicist, here's his quote on the same subject. He's, I, I don't know of him having any particular uh, angle on God. The problem of how meaningful or semantic information can emerge spontaneously from a collection of mindless molecules subject to blind and purposeless forces presents a deep conceptual challenge. You bet it does. It's a very deep challenge. Leave it up there for a moment because it's a bit wordy. I know it's wordy. I know that. But we're not fools. We can read, most of us. Praise God. You can hear my voice. I'm shouting loud enough. The... The, this, is a, this is not flu, this is someone else. How does it come from blind purposes forces? A deep conceptual challenge. Do you know there are many scientists who believe in blind force, don't believe in a deist, a god, who have problems with it? And here's a short quote from a Nobel Prize winning physiologist called George Wald, who once famously said this, there it is, I can't read it, so I'll read it on my bit of paper. We choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. That is what he says. We choose to believe the impossible. Because we do not want to face the alternative, that there is a creator who designed it and got it going. So we choose to believe. This is his words. Atheist scientist, but an honourable man, a man being not just clear and honest and saying we actually have to choose the impossible. That life arose spontaneously by chance. You see, people like Dawkins go on and on and people, you, think, you sometimes think you're on the back foot, you think, oh dear, you know, here we go again, it's all being rubbished. But when you read a book like this, you find he himself's rubbished, which I quite like actually, so I'm going to enjoy indulging it. You might, don't mind being here till three o'clock in the afternoon, do you? <laughs> and here's Flew writing about Dawkins. Unfortunately, on even the physiochemical level, Dawkins' approach is manifestly inadequate or worse. And he quotes Dawkins. But how does life get started? This is Dawkins asking. The origin of life was the chemical event or series of events whereby the vital conditions for natural selection first came about. Once the vital ingredient, some kind of genetic molecule, is in place, true Darwinian natural selection can follow. Flew jumps down and says, well, how does he explain this happens? This is Dawkins again. Scientists, this is Dawkins' quote, scientists invoke the magic of large numbers. The beauty of the anthropomorphic, whatever it is, principle, is that it tells us, against all intuition, that a chemical model need only predict that life will arise on one planet in a billion billion to give us a good and entirely satisfactory explanation for the presence of life here. Now we're back to Flew's comment. Given this type of reasoning, writes Flew, which is better described as an audacious exercise in superstition, anything we decide should exist somewhere if we just invoke the magic of large numbers, unicorns, or the elixir of youth. Even though staggeringly improbable, they're bound to occur against all intuition. The only requirement is a chemical model that need only predict 
these might occur on one planet in a billion billion. Now, that's somebody being sarcastic. So that's a rubbish argument. In other words, there's no argument. There's no justification. Do you know how people cope, real scientists cope with this, this view who are atheistic? They have created a theory called the multiverse. The theory is that there are billions of universes, and only our ones struck lucky. That when a universe starts, it starts with a big bang, and that big bang decides all the laws that we call the laws of nature. Everything starts then. And for, I don't know, they don't even put a time on it, there are billions of universes popping off. Universes, listen, universes, popping off, and our one struck lucky. Now, in order for chance to have a chance, you have to have billions of universes for that to happen. There is not a shred of evidence for that. That is a theory that people are driven to rather than admit that there's a God or a creator. And it is an incredibly sad fact that that's what happens. People are driven to it by that. I did have another quote that I wanted to write. I don't know if I can find it quickly. But actually, it's anything but believe in God. Anything but believe... Oh, I've got it. Here it is. Good. Oh, it's the Davis... Uh, no, it's not Davis. It's somebody else. It's another scientist, but these aren't Christian men, right? But this is about what I've just described to you, the multiverse thing. A true scientific explanation... Uh, oh, no, let's, let's read you the paragraph. You're all right with this, aren't you? You okay? Yeah, okay. A true scientific explanation, says Davis, that's the one I mentioned earlier, is like a single well-aimed bullet. Now, hear this, hear the logic. A true scientific explanation is like a single well-aimed bullet. The idea of a multiverse replaces the rationally ordered real world with an infinitely complex charade and makes the whole idea of explanation meaningless. Flu quotes another guy called Swinburne, who is not, again, not a particular Christian. He has just a strong disdain for the multiverse. This is a guy called Swinburne. It is crazy to postulate a tri- trillion causally unconnected universes to explain the features of one universe when postulating one entity, i.e. God, will do the job. Right? They say, what are you doing? You're saying, well, this is so like, you know, the universe knew we were coming. That's the whole point behind this, right? Life could not, you cannot live. Where's the chance factor? And they look at one universe and they think it never could happen by chance. That's honestly what they think. They do the maths and they think, no, it couldn't have done. They just cannot say there's a God, so it's got to be that there are billions of universes and our one struck lucky. Because you've got to find an alternative because the evidence is so weighty, like the hotel room, there's got to be an explanation for it. Do you see the weight of that? Do you understand that the most logical, sane interpretation is there is a creator? There is a God. And we're talking at a high level of science, much beyond my level. But we're talking about people who say, you can't, that quote, that last quote, they are these idiots almost... The multiverse, a much more logical explanation is one creator, a God. That's not actually a Christian writing at all. These are men debating it at that level. Brothers and sisters, we have got a strong case for a God. Do you understand that? For a creator. Life itself points to it. That we are not the product of blind chance and inanimate matter and just a long time. Of course we're not. Let's talk quickly about another two, but they're very important. Personality. I've talked about life. Now I want to talk about personality. It's changing tack slightly. 
I'm talking about what we call our humanness, our self-awareness, our reasoning, our emotions, our intelligence, our language, our creativity, our thoughts, our character, our personality. You've got personality. Yes, you have. (laughs) You have. Wonderful, wonderful personality. You can do all those things. You can be self-aware. You can reason. You have intelligence. You can talk. You have emotion. You have character. Every one of us has a unique personality. The Bible states God is a personal God. He's not a blind force. He's a personal God. And he created man in his image. Man generically, men and women, obviously. He created mankind in his image. And we are therefore personal and relational. Because God is personal and relational. He couldn't create something with some abilities he hasn't got. Like we can be relational and friendly, but he isn't because he doesn't understand it. Because he's a lonely old man. That's ludicrous. God obviously, in his amazing complexity, understands relationship. He creates everything. And we know a little bit about the Trinity to help us on that. But, but frankly, we're dealing with God and it's easy, easy to be lost trying to understand him. Point is, he's relational and personal. So biblical Christianity listen to this, I would say this strongly, has an adequate, reasonable explanation for the source of human personality. We're asking our big questions. How come, not only are we alive, but how come we're personal? How come we have character? We can communicate, we can be creative. How come we're like we are? Well, biblical Christianity will tell you a lot about that. But the teaching of humanistic evolution, which is what our culture is obsessed with, has huge problems with this. Because we are then being taught by our atheistic, humanistic culture that personality arose from the impersonal. That's very important. Personal arose from the impersonal. Basically, things like this evolved into things like me. Okay? You know, lumps of just substance, dead nothingness, form personality. Do you get the weight? That's a weighty thing to claim. That, that personal, personal came from the impersonal. And this is a huge challenge. No one has presented a coherent idea or demonstrated the feasibility of how, from an impersonal, mindless beginning, you get personality. But there's a worse spin to this one. Because we've all got personality. So being taught this has led to incredible confusion Why are people so depressed? And why do we get so much blackness in our art? So much depression, despair and suicide, particularly from thinking people. Was it Alex? I don't know why he did it, but a guy committed suicide probably, didn't he, recently? Some fashion guy. I mean, people are all, people who think, why are they so confused? Why do they do this? Now, let me personally, but there's something, why is it all so dark? Because for about a hundred years, we've told you, you've got all this stuff and it's meaningless. Actually, you came from blobs of nothing. So when you want to talk about morality, when you want to talk about personality, you're talking about a meaningless thing. Because we're all basically lumps of rock. That's what we came from, meaningless. Now, here's another writer, a Christian writer, Francis Schaeffer. Old book, you can tell by the title, tell by the price, 15 shillings. <laughs> 15 shillings. How many, how many know what 15 shillings is? Hey, the oldies are here. Right. <laughs> Shillings disappeared in about 1971. 72, perhaps something like that. Paul? <laughs> so I, I, you may be able to get this on Amazon. It's still a good read. I suppose it's, it might not have been republished. The God who is there. Listen to Schaefer dealing with this argument. 
He's dealing with this argument through a sort of metaphor picture. I think he does it well. I hope you do. It's only a paragraph, but you're sort of listening again this morning. It's a bit unusual, isn't it? Tell you a story, right? This is Schaefer making the point I'm trying to make. Do hear it, because it's vital to every one of you in this room living in modern Britain to understand this. It's a huge issue. If it's all meaningless, mindless molecules of nothingness or just substance... How, when we're personal, all the stuff we've said, what's, how does this work? Listen to this. Imagine that a universe existed which was made up only of liquids and solids and no free gases. A fish was swimming in this universe. This fish, quite naturally, was conformed to its environment so that it was able to go on living. But let us suppose that by blind chance, as the evolutionists would have us believe, This fish developed lungs as it continued swimming in the universe without any gases. This is about personality, this illustration, okay? So let's imagine this fish developed lungs as it continued swimming in this universe without any gases. Now, this fish would no longer be able to function and fulfil its position as a fish. Would it then be higher or lower in its new state with lungs? It would be lower, for it would drown. In the same way, if man has been kicked up out of that which is only impersonal by chance, then those things that make him man, hope of purpose, significance, love, or hope of significance, sorry, love, motions of morality, rationality, beauty, verbal communication, these things are ultimately unfulfillable and thus meaningless. In such a situation, is man higher or lower? he would then be the lowest creature on the scale. The green moss on the rock is higher than he is, for it can be fulfilled in the universe which exists. But if the world is what these men say it is, then man, not only individually but as a race, being totally unfulfillable, is dead. In this situation, man should not walk on the grass, but respect it, for the grass is higher than he is. Do you see the point? Don't think lungs, think personality. If we've been thrown up out of blind chance with a personality, we're worse off than moss. It hasn't got personality. Grass hasn't got personality. It's fitted to a meaningless universe. It's fitted to a just blind response to a few forces. We've got all this junk to handle of morality and communication and creativity and beauty and all the stuff, and it's totally rubbish. It's useless. It'd be better to be a rock because you fit in with a meaningless universe. But the, the, that's a powerful argument, but you, and of course people who don't believe in God end up despairing. But the fact is, the point is, personality points to a personal God. That's the point. It points to a personal God. The very things that make us human cry out the truth that there is an intelligent, personal, relational creator. Let's move on quickly to religion, and we will be quick. So we talked about life, we talked about personality. This is the subject of religion. Now, religion is found present in some form or other in almost every tribe and people group in the, in the world. Now, in the 19th century, various anthropologists who were very influenced by evolutionary theories that were all the buzz after Darwin, they were convinced that religion was an aberration, 
and that as you went round the world, you'd find all sorts of primitive tribes who hadn't taken on board the clutter of religion. What they found was everybody had religion. Everybody. And in fact, even some of the exceptions, when you really explored their culture, they had religion. And if you did occasionally, occasionally, occasionally find a people group, and occasionally you did, that didn't seem to have any religion, the very exception proved the rule. It's like finding a blind person. You find a blind... There are blind people, but when you find a blind person, the logical jump is not, wow, we could all be as easily blind as not blind. And in fact, it might be better if we were blind. I mean, that's not how you think when you meet a blind person. It's that sort of thing. You meet one little example of non-religion, it doesn't make you think, well, it'd be better if we were all like that, and, you know, maybe it was... No, no, no. Religion is everywhere. Like eyesight is everywhere. Yeah, there's an occasional slight aberration, but it almost proves the rule. Now, this is an important fact. Religion is strange, is it not? A strange thing in mankind. You can't ignore it, you can't shake it off, but many people think it's a complete and utter nuisance. And you hear a lot about that today. And yet, somehow, religion is often linked, whatever it is, to the deepest springs of humanity. It's what drives people. People would kill themselves for religion and have done frequently all through the centuries and do today. It somehow touches very deep things in people and yet it's apparently an irritating aberration. I think the Marxist view is now thoroughly kicked out the window that it was the invention of cunning priests to keep people poor and happy while they waited for something in the future. That was a sort of Marxist view. That's very 20th century, I have to tell you. That's very passé now. That's not a view anybody accepts nowadays. Probably the more common view today is from, from our humanist culture is that it, 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 it's something that evolved by people starting to worship lifeless objects, starting to worship animals, and then it evolved to the sort of complicated religions we have today. But that doesn't really answer the question. How on earth did people ever hit on the idea of worshipping lifeless objects? Why do they want to do it? Why do we do it? Animals don't do it. You know, why? Why do we worship funny little bunny rabbits but they don't worship us? You know, or bunny, worse than bunny rabbits, <coughs> monsters and things. You know, why, why do we do it? Why don't they carve little models of human beings and go, oh, great, human being, and we go carve a sort of Ooh, a snake and worship it. Now, what's wrong with us? What's, what's our freak? Why are we doing it? What's religion about? That's important. That's very important. The Bible gives the only reliable account of the origin of religion. It informs us of the existence of the one true living God, the Creator, who is the only object worthy of worship. We're made to worship God. We are made to worship. We're not made to just stick with ourselves and what we can do, and uh, well, actually it's all blind chance, but we try. No, 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 that doesn't work. It makes much more sense, and of course there's plenty of sin and aberrations in it, but it makes much more sense to worship something bigger than yourself. You're made to do that. There is a real God-shaped gap. That's not just a slick phrase. It's true. There's a God-shaped gap in us. The Bible tells us men and women were made in his own image and made for him to understand and respond to God's revelation of himself. God has engendered in us a natural urge. We were made for communion with God. We're made to glorify God. We're made to worship him and be in harmony with him. He is the only one worthy of our worship. Now, men and women worship all sorts of things, but there is a justifiable one to worship, the right one, the creator, the living God. I believe religion, and you could tie to that without having the time to look at it, moral sense, 
I think these are weighty arguments. You know, the sense of right and wrong, again, often distorted and twisted by various sinful cultures, but there is that fundamental moral sense in human beings. And I think these things are very important. Why is it wrong? You know, why do we get uptight about we get very In our day and age, people get very uptight about things, it's just they get uptight about weird things, you know. You know, politically incorrect things make people angry and, you know, whoa. but there's always that sense of right and wrong. You know, if you're a racist, and I don't like racism, I hasten to say, you know, people will be really, that is utterly wrong. Get them right off the programme, sack them. There's a sense of right and wrong, it's just different from Victorian England. It's not, not, it's not, it's just different. Victorian England, oh, showed her ankle, sack her. In modern England, made a racist comment, sack her. So the, the sense of right and wrong is there. It just gets distorted. What is all this? What's this sense of right? Well, it goes with the whole package, the worship of God. There's something in us that needs the proper filling. Now, here we come towards the end. The element is that God wants us to seek after him. Our God is a personal God. He's a relational God. He's a living God. There's life because God is alive. There is a living God. God's not dead. He's alive. And he created life. He's a personal God. He relates to us. He made us for relationship. He is a personal God. Everything we've got is but a tiny shadow of what he is. Tiny shadow. If we can be creative, he can be. If we can relate, he can relate. He's far, far more. Far, far more. And of course we're made to worship him. All of this points to it. The Bible emphasised God has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in our conscience, our moral experience. He's revealed himself in history. He's revealed himself in his word. And above all, he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. This God is so committed to knowing us and relating to us that he became a man. He became flesh. God became flesh. The word became flesh. In some incredible way, God incarnated himself because we were so important. We are the centre of his concerns. And he is so concerned and involved that he came and was a man. He is a man. Jesus Christ. And it's hard to understand it, but that is we're dealing with God. It's real. We don't have to understand it all to believe it. Thank God, because we're only human beings. But God is that committed to relating to us. We can know him. Quick flick at a couple of scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament. Here's an Old Testament one. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. That's all Old God says, what you want to boast about is that you know me. Do you know me? The most important issue for any human being on the planet is do they know God? Do you know me? Because I said, don't boast about all that stuff. Boast if you know me. <laughs> boast if you know me. Let's go to the New Testament quickly. John 17, 3. Jesus, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what Christianity is. Christianity, yeah, it's eternal life, but you only get eternal life because you know God. It's not like, oh, I've got eternal life, a ticket forever. No, no, it's not quite like that. You know God. That's eternal life. You will carry on knowing him through eternity. The big, big, wonderful truth is you can know this living God. He wants to know you. He's removed the stuff that stood between you and him, which was sin. He's taken it out of the way that you might truly know him. Now, you'll never 
fully know him. Let's quickly flick up Romans 11.33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his past beyond tracing out. You will never fully know God, not even in eternity. But you can know something of his love, of his power, of his wisdom. You can know the outer fringes, as Job puts it in Job's book. You can know his outer fringes. And there's always going to be more and more to know. We'll never run out of things to know about God. For all eternity, we'll be learning more. But you can start knowing him now. Hallelujah. Many of you have, haven't you? Perhaps not all of you in this room. You can start to know God. Being a Christian is about a relationship with God. It's about knowing God. It's not rules. It's not set down this, set down that. What should I do or shouldn't do? You know what you should do Our walking with him. Get to know him and then please the Lord. That's the basic guideline, really. You can know him. He wants you to know him. You can know true things about God, but you might not know all there is to know. You won't. We can know true things, but not everything. That's why Paul is so committed to the gospel, as we saw we read. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the answer to this problem. We read it at the beginning of my talk. In, in Romans, he's saying, the gospel, all over the world, people are worshipping all sorts of weird things and saying there's no God and saying this, but there is a God, and the gospel is the way they get to know him. Amen? There is nothing you can do more effectively for Hastings or modern Britain than preach the gospel about Jesus Christ. If you're worried about the state of your country, if you're worried about... The, yeah, and I, you should be. So am I. Then one of the answers is the gospel. The big answer, the ram's horn. We need to blow the ram's horn. You can do other stuff. The gospel's more than words. It's actions, it, it's, it's good deeds, it's wonders and works as well as words. But we need the gospel. Whatever we're doing, the thing people most need to hear is Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. And there's a God in heaven who wants you to know him. And actually, to quote Colossians 1.10, you can grow in the knowledge of God. Isn't that exciting? Perhaps you've been a Christian 20 years, 30 years. You're a bit bored. Ah, you're being silly. You're focusing on secondary things. Silly boy. You need to know God. The more you know God, the more exciting it will be. Give yourself to it. I mean, what a privilege. What a privilege. You can pray to him, you can read his words, you can be filled with his spirit. It says, I've got lots of other scriptures, I don't think I'll have time for them. We flash it up quickly just to remind people. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, it's not lots, but there's one. 1 Corinthians 2, let's pick it up. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. We could read the whole quote. God says, I'm, I'm going to reveal stuff to you. Is that good news or not? Matt, is that exciting? Praise God. <laughs> that is, though, isn't it? You can know God more and more. Honestly. That's what it's all about. It's not God's holding back, think, oh, well, if you get all the rules right, I'll let you into my heaven. It's much more to it than that. Much, much more. And we can have this amazing privilege, the deep things of God we can be known, we can understand what he's freely given us. And now we're going to stop. I have said a lot, I knew I would, I told Paul I want to do a bit of let myself go. I asked for bread and wine, have we got time for it Paul? Just worship.
Let's have the worship band up, because I just want us a moment of worshipful response. Um, what I, I, I think bread and wine would require to be done properly a bit longer than, I'd li- than, than we've got. And I don't want to just rush it round. But I would like us not just to rush out and decide whether the dinner's burnt or not and all that stuff that will happen. I want us to take a few moments just to reflect on these big, big things. Is that okay? So we can allow five minutes? Thanks. Okay, what I want us to do in a minute when the band have got themselves organised is just worship our wonderful God. And I suppose I did want to say, I want an opportunity, which this will be, if you don't know God for yourself, why don't you just ask him, oh God, help me to know you. Show yourself to me. Open my eyes to you. Make a prayer. If you're ready to ask Jesus into your life because you already know what that's all about, please do that and then come and tell one of the leaders. You may know you've been on Alpha or something. You probably know a bit already. Well, maybe this morning, just go for it. Say, God, I've been hovering on the edge. I want to know you. Please, if you really do that in our next moment or two of worship and say, Jesus, please come into my life. I want to know you. If you mean it, please talk to Matt or Paul or Santino. Do please talk to them because they'll want to just help you perhaps just to follow up on that. You might just feel, well, I'm not quite ready for that. Well, then say, God, open you. I believe God will come. God wants you to know him, right? Got the point? <laughs> so I believe he'll come to you. If you mean it, you say, God, I just need to know you. Open my eyes. Show me the truth. Whatever you like. And then keep your eyes ready to be opened. See what God will do. The rest of us, let's just worship him for a moment or two before we go. Thank you. Yeah. Musicians, players, we probably want a lot of time. Let's just take a moment just to say that we've sung beautiful words. A lovely song there, Nick, you've chosen. Just tell God he's amazing in your own words. And say, I do love you, Lord. I don't understand you, but I know you. It's a different thing. We know him. And it says, we haven't seen him, but we love him. It's incredible, isn't it? But that's because of Jesus. Through Jesus. And he makes it a bit understandable. When we look at Jesus, we can grasp something. Something of God's character. Something of his compassion. His righteousness. His, his grace. It's lots of lovely stuff in Jesus. That's where we get the real understanding. But let's just, just while you play, Nick, let's just pray for ourselves, really. Just tell him. Just tell him you love him. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. You're amazing, God. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. You're amazing, God. Yes, Lord. Amazing, God. Thank you, Jesus. Oh,